0: well 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 good morning guys doing all right i mean it's cold so like i feel a little bit like i'm not all right because like it's so cold anyways that's okay we will survive right Amen. Um, What a joy it is to continue our journey as we travel our way through the extraordinary unfolding story of God and us. Uh, God was gracious enough to us not just to come and do a great work of redemption, but he was gracious enough to us to reveal himself and that work, and our story as it relates to his story through his incredible and exceptional word. And we have been traveling through that story uh, for well over a decade now as we started in Genesis many, many years ago, and we have been moving our way through. And we find ourselves now in the historical context of that space where Paul and other authors... Of the New Testament are writing letters to the churches and the regions to which they have either planted those churches or where there is need because they have be- uh, gotten requests from those churches. So, Paul, obviously, uh, maybe not obviously to you, but he is in Rome at this point. And so uh, people are sent back and forth from the known world to Rome to come to Paul and to say to Paul and and even Peter at times, hey, this is going on in our midst. Uh, How should we handle that? Uh, What should we do about that? And they didn't have the luxury uh, of zooming in or uh, shooting an email. Uh, And so we are the recipients, by God's grace, of incredible letters that were written back and forth. And right now we are in that letter that was written by Paul to the church in Philippi. Uh, This was one of the churches that Paul had uh, established early on in his ministry. He was on his second church planting journey, his second missionary journey. If you remember, uh, he uh, had traveled uh, sort of north of uh, Asia Minor, south of Bithynia on his way from Antioch. Uh, he traveled across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia and encountered Philippi and then he moved from Philippi down the the coastline of the uh, of the Aegean Sea through Macedonia and that's where we hit all of those beautiful cities Thessalonica and Athens and uh, and and then down into Corinth and all that stuff happened and it was many years ago from the timing of this letter so the people in Philippi um had sent word to Paul in Rome and they were struggling because uh, if you remember, uh, their struggle was in some ways similar to ours, insofar as they were in a city that was deeply embedded uh, in its sense of the power and wonder of Rome, because that was where all the uh, high-ranking Roman officers and highly valued Roman citizens were sent to retire. And so you are a church that is representing a kingdom that is inside out and upside down from the kingdom of this world, that is a reversal in many ways, and that only has one king, King Jesus, and this is a world that opposes the realities of a place like Philippi. And so the church in Philippi is experiencing some complicated realities. How do we live our lives as Christians in a culture that does not just oppose the way we live, but is opposed by the way we live right so they don't like this and so as we live out there is persecution there is complications there are relational dynamics what do we do how do we do this and then internally Uh, We struggle with each other because we have a million different opinions about what we should do and how we should do it. And so we end up spending as much time internally, a little fractured. And so now we're trying to figure out we're fractured internally. We have an external environment that's tough and we have circumstances that are unpredictable and we serve Jesus. What does it all mean? Anything sound familiar? And so what a beautiful letter uh, to not just go to the church in Philippi, but to come all the way through history to us by the spirit of God through Paul uh, to say to us, here's the deal. So Paul in this letter uh, kind of set a context right off the bat in his partnership with the church in Philippi, his joy of them. And, and he reminded them of the extraordinary privilege he it as Paul, that they are co-laborers with Christ, bringing us back to the calling of like, what is our call on this planet? Regardless of the environment we're in, are you in a dictatorial environment under a, a, a psychotic dictator where the church gets burned if you establish it? Yep, make the gospel beautiful. Are you in a a, a poverty infested world where there is no prosperity? Make the gospel beautiful. Are you in a world of prosperity and a democracy where everything that you've ever dreamed of and you have every right that you would wish, make the gospel beautiful. What Paul is saying is we are in partnership together uh, in advancing the kingdom of I'm gonna do that one more time because there was a little nervousness. they like, I think God, maybe, maybe uh, to advance the kingdom of God. That's right. And there is no circumstance on this planet that robs us of that opportunity. Let me say that again. There is no circumstance on this planet that robs us of the opportunity to be able to advance the kingdom of God. It does not matter uh, poverty or wealth, sickness or health. Uh, It does not matter good circumstances or bad. The opportunity to make the gospel beautiful exists in every circumstance. It is the choice we make as to who we are following and what kingdom we are representing that will matter. So this is Paul's connexion. And then in chapter 1, verse 27... Paul uh, writes after writing about their circumstances a bit and his, his joy of them and partnership with them and then his circumstances of suffering and says, man, I, I, I know I'm struggling. Here's what he writes. He writes only verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, right? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Folks, listen to me. Regardless of where we're at, this is our rest of our life journey. Let your manner of life, your way of life, be what? Worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to your life. Are you husband or wife? Single or married? Child or parent? Well or not? Poor or rich? Here's the sentence. Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of what you now know you are the recipient of in Christ and what you now know you represent as the kingdom of God and the personhood of God. This is our life. And then in that context, Paul entered where we were last week, right? So how does this play out right here with us? Because it's got to start here. This is not first and foremost about how we as the followers of Jesus interact with the world that does not know Jesus, that is coming, but it starts where? If we can't interact with one another in a way that represents the kingdom of God, in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then our chance of ever, ever living worthy of the kingdom of God in front of the world is zero. So if we are not in this together, then we are not living worthy of the gospel. That's a big statement, but it's just true. So boy, how important is that we get this right together, right? What a calling. And then he gives it to us. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Here it is. Okay, here it is. Let me, let me read it to you as a reminder, cause you, you heard it. Um, last week I heard it um, and we've heard it a lot, but let's hear it again. Here it is, it's, it's so simple. It's so simple. Listen, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, there it is. I mean, should I go on? Do I need to go on? We're done, right? Okay, Mosaic Church, go do that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Consider others' needs ahead of your own. (laughs) We're dead, right? I mean, isn't that the issue, right? We hear that. It's beautiful. It feels right. It's romantic. It's wonderful. It's like, yes, we're going to go do that. And then you walk out of here and the donuts are low. And you're like, what on earth? Who's who's responsible for this? There were chocolate ones earlier, but these stupid other humans took them. You would not not say that in the lobby because we're Christians. You say it in the car and you drive home. And And that's here, like right in this place. The places we interact every day, we are confronted second by second by the nature that says, are you other humans considering my needs? I mean, just get the kids ready in the morning for school. That's it. That's all you need to do if you have multiple children and you'll be like, well, that that's never gonna happen. Because every personality enters into the spaces in which we live And every personality begins with, I am wired a certain way and you other human are violating the wiring of my system. In my home, I have the wonderful privilege of having children with different personalities. I mean, if I could go back in time, I'd tell God, listen, next time around, can you make them all basically the same? Because if you do, then I won't struggle with one who likes to be on time and one who likes to sleep in and doesn't give a a rip about time, right? And so you try that in the mornings There is no morning in my house Years in I'm, I mean just think about the insanity of this Years in And I can't think of a time I haven't stood at the bottom of our stairs And said I, I won't name names this time <laughs> I'm like, Get down here How many times have I said You need to be down here by this time And it's seven minutes past that time And you still need to eat breakfast Why am I doing this? Is it because I care that they're on time? No, it's because the other child is in the kitchen screaming at me. Where are they? We're going to be late again. This is ridiculous. And so I could theoretically quietly sleep in in the morning while my children go downstairs, simply make some sandwiches, get some breakfast, roll out the door and drive themselves to school. But why am I down there? Because they won't do that because each human in my household, like every one of you and I, rolls into life saying, these are my preferences. We might even dare to say, and sometimes rightly, these are my rights. And then we might even say, if we dare, these are my prerogatives. Now you might say, uh, what is the Prerogative. Rather than a right, listen, just so you know, I'm one of those people that I'm I'm so aware in rooms how often, especially in theological circles, we say big words that we're all supposed to know what they mean, but none of us really do. And so we all nod like prerogatives. So we were talking this week and the word prerogative came up uh, in our discussion with the teaching team. And I was the one that said, okay, hold on, time on. Someone define prerogative for me. Because generally I think I know what it means, but do you really? Prerogative. Yeah, it's kind of like a right, isn't it? Yes. So how is it different than right? Why would we have two words, right and prerogative? Why use prerogative? And why did Renaud start with preferences, then go to rights, and then he had this other word, prerogative? Well, the word becomes important in a second, and I'll tell you why. So what a prerogative is, is the only difference between a prerogative and a right is that a prerogative is an exclusive right, meaning it is a right to a person that exclusively has it because of their position. So when you say someone has a prerogative, it means generally that the other people around them don't necessarily hold that right. So sometimes we position ourselves as someone that says, because of my position in this family, in this marriage, in this relationship, in this workplace, in this, you name it, I have prerogative. I have exclusivity in my rights, a right you don't have, and I exercise that right. Nothing wrong with that. If you have a right, you exercise it. If you have a prerogative, you exercise it. And so when we do, we find ourselves constantly in a place where we are struggling between the person who has prerogative and the person who is the humiliated one, the one who does not have prerogative. We see this in our marriages. We see this in our friendships. We see this everywhere. So when we come to a space like this in the Bible and we read verses like this, do nothing out of selfish ambition, it becomes a little bit of a struggle for me because I sort of go, I could preach that to you, I could preach that to me, but how is it going to translate out there when every single day we are confronted by these realities? And thankfully, I am not the only one that felt that way. Thankfully, the spirit of God knew this was our reality and Paul felt what we feel. So Paul is often the author that is gonna make a statement And then right after the statement, he's going to go, yep, it's romantic. Yep, it feels impossible. So how on earth do we measure ourselves to a place where we can override the natural instinct to stand in rights and stand in prerogatives and roll our way through, demanding that the rest of the human race bows to our will? It's a little exaggeratory, but generally that's how it's going. So we read the verse and then Paul says, okay, Let's talk about how this is going to roll down. And what is about to occur, what we are about to read is some of the most beautiful and extraordinary theological clarity we gain of the great redemptive work of Jesus. It is something that begins to help shape and help us understand the extent to which Jesus gave himself to us. But having said that, I wanna be clear about something in the passage we're about to read. And one always has to do this carefully in scripture. When there are things that are put forward by an author of scripture in the New Testament, and those things are theological in nature. In other words, they are describing a reality that is explaining complex understandings of God. How God's human nature and divine nature collide. I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? when you have paragraphs that explain that you should always ask yourself is the intent of this explanation to be an explanation or is the intent of this explanation to be an example to follow it doesn't mean that there is not then great a great deal to learn about the theology but when the intent of the explanation is to give you example to follow. We should be careful to shape deep uh, assumptions about this because Paul's intent here is not to help us deeply understand the collision between God's humanity and divinity, though that's what's on the table. His intent here is to show us a reason that we should set aside our prerogatives and rights for the sake of others. Now we'll learn a ton about Jesus and his divinity and humanity but it is not the actual point. Are you with me so far? So we're gonna touch on that, but the reason we are there is to ask ourselves, how did Jesus do it? He's our leader. He's our king. He is the king of the new kingdom that we represent. So how does he live and how do we shape ourselves in accordance with his way? That's what this is about. So look what it says. Uh, We are in Philippians chapter two and we're jumping into verse five as we transition into the passage we're gonna be in today. Verse 5, after saying, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, says, Having, um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, okay? So, now Paul is saying, in order to do what I've just called you to do, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to engage your mind in remembering and engaging in something. So... Uh, put, put this down in your mind or in your notes, okay? If we're going to walk into our kitchen in the morning and not go crazy about everybody else's rights uh, violating our own or in our friendships or our marriages, then the first step is that we're going to have to regularly and constantly, especially in environments that we know our prerogatives and rights will rear their head and scream at our soul and say, grab it, grasp it, take it, it's yours. We need to set our minds. Okay, hold, hold, Renault, hold. You're walking into that environment and your wife is there. Okay, here we go. I love my wife, don't get me wrong. But isn't that where it starts happening, right? Oh, your child is there, your sibling is there, your work, coworker is there. Who stabs you in the back all the time? And I've got to walk in and say, okay, hold on. Set my mind to that which is mine in Christ. Now, interesting sentence here. Because in the Greek sentence, the word is or was is not part of the Greek sentence. It is to be inserted. So this sentence could either mean the mind that you have that is yours in Christ, which would suggest that because we belong to Jesus and we have the spirit of God, we already have this mind available to us. We need to step into it. That would be a right way of thinking about this. The other option of this sentence is that was the mind of Christ which would suggest to us that there is a modeling here. We should look to how Christ thought. We should adjust our mind to his way and we should walk into it. Whether this sentence says, which is yours in Christ or which was Christ's, it changes nothing, does it? Because they combine. If it is yours in Christ, you still need to set it onto his. If it is his and you are his follower and powered by the spirit, you need to set it on his. So what is the conclusion here? If we are going to live out what we are called to live out as representatives of the kingdom of God, we need to set our minds on the way of our leader and King Jesus. So what was his way? This here is an explanation of how we are to walk into circumstances where our rights and prerogatives will throw themselves on the table and how we are to manage that internal exercise to best engage in the human relationships in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You with me so far? Take a look now. Look what he says. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Woo! Okay, we are in some serious theological territory now because now we are in that space that often creates a great deal of controversy as to exactly what happened when Jesus took on human form and what exactly was lost in that taking on, if anything, and what exactly wasn't. And so we begin here Paul says so as you set your mind on that which is yours in Christ or which was his mind we start here Christ had a position now the reason we say he had a position when we use the sentence who was in the form of God is because that sentence really describes in form a true and exact nature so it's saying reminder folks prior to Jesus stepping into the story of becoming flesh, born from the Virgin Mary, was he equal to God? Was he God? Was he one with the Father and the Spirit? Was there absolute equality? Was his positioning in any way in true and exact nature less than God himself? No, so this is speaking to the pre-existence of Christ as it relates to his humanity, that before he became human, what was his position? His position was equality with God. So some translations here, instead of saying who was in the form of God would say who had equality with God, okay? So you'll see those translations. It means the same thing. His true and exact nature was true and exact God. So, when you are the creator and sustainer of all things, okay, do you have some prerogative? I love that laugh. Thank you, whoever did that, because that is legit. That's how we all should have responded. Like, is that a stupid statement? Are you trying to call us unintelligent? Of course, if you are the creator and sustainer and all things that exist are held together by your will and desire, I think prerogative is the word that you define. And here's what it's saying. Jesus, prior to entering our world, had equality with God and held that position that came with it all prerogative. You with me? But he did not consider grasping his prerogative as something he should do. When we talk about he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, we get confused sometimes and say, he was equal with the father, then he became human and he was not equal with the father because he stopped chasing after equality. And we can get even more confused and say, does that mean that Jesus throughout time was kind of sort of not equal to the father? And he just didn't consider like trying to be equal with the father, something to be grasped. That is not what this is saying at all in any way whatsoever, because that would violate the rest of scripture. What it is saying is that when Jesus held position that had right or prerogative, He did not consider that prerogative something that he had to hold on to. We see this in the temptation of Jesus when he's faced with the enemy coming to him and saying, stand on the temple, hop off, because you have, listen now, the prerogative to say, keep me from hitting the ground. You have the prerogative to say, feed me bread. This is your prerogative. You are the sustainer and the creator of all things. And Jesus says, I have that prerogative but I don't see that as something I have to grasp. Instead, I'm gonna do something else that will in many ways violate my prerogative. Now, we're gonna get there and we're gonna talk here because it relates not only to the theological realities of God's humanity and divinity, but also to our calling as Christians to set aside our rights for the sake of others as it relates to the biblical community. Watch this now. So you've got that so far. Not equality, But prerogative, uh, rights. So he says this. (laughs) But, but, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Okay, so, (laughs) this gets tricky. So in a lot of theological spaces not a lot, in some theological spaces, and perhaps in some you grew up like me, we have here a theological format that is called kenosis. What it says is that Jesus, when he stepped into human form, he voluntarily took his divine attributes and he set them aside. He emptied himself of his divine attributes in order to be fully human. So in order to be fully human, he had to become not fully God in his functionality. This is not a good doctrinal stand because what it does is it says his humanity diminished in some form his divinity, which it did not. Jesus was one who simultaneously always existed in both forms of his humanity and divinity. He was always God-man together, and he is the one who could fully be both. We say, well, if he was fully God, how could he then? So let me give you a few examples. Jesus was one who thirsted, right? And this is in the Bible. So just if you're like, I don't know, was that right? Yes, he was thirsty, okay? Yet he said, if you ever thirst, come to me and I will quench all of your thirst. Was he ever hungry? I mean, you can read the Bible, he was hungry. Yet he says, I am the bread of life and he feeds thousands. Was he able to produce at any given second anything so that he would never experience hunger? Of course he was. That is a divine attribute and power. But at the same time, he was hungry. He voluntarily, listen carefully now, here's where we start, took his prerogative and set it aside. What he emptied himself of was not divinity, was not attributes of divinity, was not power. It was prerogative. It was right. He had the right to do many things. In fact, even as far as glory is concerned, one argues here, and it's complex, did God in becoming human form in the form of Jesus set aside his glory? And the answer is Y- y- yes, no, 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 yes, no. So I have a word for that. It's no, yes. We've used it before. So he didn't, he didn't. What do I mean? He didn't set aside his glory, but he did in some ways beyond our comprehension restrict the expression of his glory, which in a heavenly space we read in Revelation produces a 24-7, though there's no time there. So in other words, a forever, never ceasing expression of the fact that he deserves glory. They are literally angels created that their entire existence for all of eternity is just this "Holy, holy, 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 holy. To God, because does God solicit and deserve and have the prerogative for ongoing glorification at all seconds of all time for all of eternity? Yes, he does. And as he walked on this planet, should he have had the right to express that glory in such a way that we would literally in every encounter go, yes, did he? No. You know, even in the transfiguration, isn't it incredible? that as he steps into the transfiguration, which is where he went up on the mountain with a couple of his disciples and he showed them his glory, right? You realize there how Jesus was in a consistent state of keeping outside of himself, emptying himself of his prerogatives, but not of his glory, not of his attributes, not of his power. So here's why this is important. Listen carefully. This becomes very important as it relates to our journey. Because what we do not have to do are not called to do or not asked to do, because it was not what our Savior did is to take our power, our rights, our things, and abandon them i 'm sorry not our rights our power or our position or our the spaces that make us us, and abandon them so we can make ourselves equal with other humans. Our calling is not. To become something we're not, just like Jesus did not become something he was not. He did not cease to be either divine or live in the attributes of divinity. But what he did do was take that power and kept it in a space that its expression took out of position his prerogatives. Now, remember in the Old Testament when Moses asked that he wanted to see God and God said, well... I I do want to show myself to you fully because he said, I want to see you fully. I want to to see the whole deal. And God's like, I can do that. Trouble is you will cease to exist. So it's just a a little troubling thing because when you, a sinful human, encounter my glory, you die. So what he did is he took Moses and he hid him, it says, in the cleft of the rock. It's like, he was like, and then it says, when he passed by, he passed by with his back, like, And Moses glowed for days after that, right? And was like, "Oh, oh! I almost died!" In many ways, when Jesus stepped into human form, the miracle of incarnation. The miracle of this is that he took a glory we could not withstand that made him inaccessible to us. And he gave us the space in which we could encounter it. He set his prerogatives aside for the sake of our accessibility to him and for the sake of him becoming our mediator. And it is exceptional. And so here's what Paul is saying. Jesus, who had every right to bring the full prerogatives that he had to the table, not only his rights, but his prerogatives, the exclusive ones. He emptied himself of those so that he could take on the form of a servant. Now, here we are, watch this. I am in form, God. When I take on the form of servant, do I become any less form of God? And the answer here is no, he didn't. It's not saying he was in the form of God. He didn't see a quality or something to be chased after, So he became a servant and ceased being in the form of God. It's saying, no, he was in the form God, which gave him prerogative. He became in the form servant, which by definition removed prerogative, not divinity, not attributes, just prerogative. And he did this so that he could come be with us. And then when he did this, look at what it says. It says being found in human form, this is key. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, listen to this. I'm going to read this to you because uh, humility, humility, dictionary definition, the quality or condition of being humble. So ridiculous. I'm like, why dictionary? Why? I don't understand. Okay, then you go to humble. So now you have to go to a second dictionary. I think that's their point. You got to come to us twice. Okay, here we go. Humble, what is humble then? Not proud or arrogant, modest, okay, got it. But here's the, here's the beautiful one, the next one down. Low in rank, importance, status, or quality. See, to be humble is to recognize that in this particular position, humility by definition is to say, I recognize I'm in a space where the person I'm with, I am in status, not where they are. So they have certain rights watch this now, certain prerogatives that I don't have. So I need to enter this with care to make sure that I meet their prerogatives because by definition, being humble means that they are positionally over me. And here's, this is so crazy. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus, who is humble to no one, is there anyone he is lower than? we got is there anyone he is lower than no ever ever no never which is why it says he didn't become humble he made himself humble he said i have every prerogative i will set them aside so that i can come and meet whose needs yours yours and i did it that humility, that choice to lower myself in my prerogatives and rights for your rights. This is why in Colossians, remember he says, he who was rich, rich meaning in his prerogatives, became poor, lowering his prerogatives so that you who are poor, you have no prerogative, could become rich. What? And so Paul is saying this, folks, if we're gonna live out the story of God in a manner worthy, then in your moment-by-moment dailiness, your invitation and calling is this, to acknowledge and understand your prerogatives or rights as they might stand, but to walk into a situation and ask yourself, if I'm gonna have the mind of Christ what was his mind with his prerogatives and rights? Did he did he set aside the power or position that gave him those rights? No, but he set aside the rights themselves, though he still held the power and position for the sake of others' rights. And this is our invitation and calling. I come into each situation with the mind of Christ. I humble myself and say, I have lots of stirrings, but this other person, what is their need? Their need is my opportunity and privilege to pursue versus my right or prerogative is my opportunity and privilege to pursue is your prerogative and right your opportunity and privilege to pursue. Yes, it is. And the mind of Christ says with that right, you do what? You humble yourself. You position yourself differently in terms of prerogatives and then you engage in the other person. And then look what it says. It's like Paul is saying, just in case there's any confusion as to the humility to which Christ was willing to go to set aside his prerogatives, he humbled himself even to the point of death. And then he says this, why? Even death on a cross. Why? He doesn't do that in other places. He goes, he died. He died. How he died is not the point. This time he goes, no, it is the point. You know, if you go back in human history and you look at ways we have figured out how to kill people, (laughs) we have yet to find a way that is more humiliating than crucifixion. There's lots of terrible, painful, horrible ways to die. No doubt. And we have been exceptional as humans to find new ways to produce suffering in, in, in one another on so many levels. But we have yet to find a way of death That better robs a man or woman of their being, their form, their self, their, their, their dignity. The cross was designed not simply to make you suffer, but to make you humiliated. And so here's what Paul is saying. When Jesus gave himself up for us in death, it was not just the act of suffering that mattered. It was not just the act of death. It was the act of the consistency of him taking his prerogatives and setting them aside, emptying himself of them, despite his ongoing glory and divinity so that he might meet our needs in his death. And so he chooses a way of death in a time in history that would strip him of anything that is positioned. And, and what Paul's trying to say here is, that is your king. That is your leader. That is your Lord. That is your kingdom. Do you understand now why he said, consider the needs of others ahead of your own or do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? You will, but when you do, set your mind on the mind of Christ and begin to reorder according to his mind. In John chapter 13, Jesus sat down with his disciples and he washed their feet. And you remember Peter was like, uh-uh, ain't touching my feet. And what did, wh- why did Peter say that? Because he was uncomfortable about his feet? No. He said it because he was like, if anybody's gonna wash anybody's feet, it's me washing yours because I understand our positioning. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You do understand our positioning, but you don't understand the way of my kingdom. I, who have prerogative, will empty myself of that prerogative to come and wash your feet so that you who have prerogative with other humans will empty yourself of that prerogative to wash their feet. That's why Jesus said, now that I've washed your feet, go and do what I have done for each other. Our call to do this thing that Philippians calls us to is no small thing. And it will not come naturally nor easily to you or I and we will not succeed at it every day and so our call is to remember to set our minds on the mind of christ and to engage in the constant consistency of setting aside our prerogatives for the sake of others and serving them because he did that for us one of the opportunities given to us in the church is the opportunity to engage in the remembering of the great work of jesus's redemption as it relates to our salvation and his death and resurrection. But now we have an added layer, don't we? As it also relates to his humiliation that sets the order for us to function in our dailiness. And we call it communion. Communion is a space where we, commanded by Jesus, come together around a table and we take a natural thing, some juice or wine and some bread of some kind or wafer or cookie or whatever, something we can eat and taste and something we can drink. And Jesus said, when you gather around this table and you take these things, what they, what they are designed to do is not to fulfill your hunger, not to make you, and you, you'll be clear when you see our communion things, they will do none of those things because it is not their design. Their design is simple for you to come and to be reminded, to remember, to reorder the realities of who it is that you serve and who it is you follow and what it is he did for you. And today we are going to share communion together. Yes, to remember the extraordinary position we have as people with eternal life, people who belong, people who are children of God because of his great redemption, Own that, live in that, stand in that. But also add today to this remembrance, this death was death on a cross. It was the stripping of all things dignity so that he would demonstrate the lowness of his humility so that he would call us into the same. And as you take communion today as you eat of the bread and you drink of the juice, would you sit and ask God today, as communion is actually a part of, it's a part of a confession, right? Say to God, God, today I will walk into my day and my prerogatives and rights or the perceived prerogative and rights I hold will get in the way and I'm gonna behave in them. Thank you that you already forgive me for that, but also empower me to set my mind on the mind of Christ that is mine in Christ so that I might today less so function in my prerogatives and more so empty myself of my prerogatives as you did and function in the fulfilling of the needs of others. Gosh, that we would become a people like that in regularity. What a beautiful thing that would be to the world. So the way communion is gonna work today is that around the entirety of the room from front to back, there are tables. On the tables, there's a little uh, plastic cup thingy. And it has a wafer on the top of it. So for those who like, I've got the juice, but it's tricky. On the top, there's a little thing you peel off and then there's the wafer. Um, and then underneath is a little thing. So you have both, just grab one of the things and you don't have to be like, where, where are the wafers? They're right there. Grab one of those. At each table, there are gluten-free options. For those of you that have gluten allergies, it is available at every table. So no matter which table you go to, grab one of those little things and go and sit back down in your chair. Because I really want this communion experience to be something reflective. So don't grab it, peel it, drink it, sit down. Just go get it. The act of getting up and getting it is important. That's why we do it this way. We do just pass it around because it's something that you're choosing to kind of get up and you're choosing to go and you're choosing to say, because I want to remember. If you are here and, and you're visiting and, and you don't know who Jesus is and you don't know what this is all about, know that this is a place of authenticity and freedom. We don't want you to do things that are not authentic, and you have the freedom here, without judgment, to sit and relax and watch what the body of Christ does when they come and remember. If you're coming to this table for any reason but to remember Jesus, allow me to offer this to you. You're wasting your time and His, and it's silly to do that. Don't do that. Be authentic. Stay. If you are coming to remember Jesus, what church you come from, what background you come from, we are makes zero difference. Come to the table. Grab one of those, come sit down, hold on to it. And then when you are ready, we're not doing this together because this is a moment between you and God. When you are ready, whether it is right when you sit down or as the worship song emerges, when you are ready, peel that thing open, take communion and sit in that moment and just say, God, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for your mind that you had for me. Thank you for setting aside your prerogatives for me. Teach me to do the same for others on your behalf for your glory. You washed my feet Teach me to wash others. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us. The amazing ways in which you have constantly and continually demonstrated your love for us. And in particular, by humbling yourself and taking on the form of a servant. Setting aside and emptying yourself of your prerogatives. So that we might experience the accessibility and redemption that you are and did work for us so that we would have a mediator that would set us right and take from us our sin and give us your righteousness. God, thank you that you did not just tell us that you did this for us, but that you've empowered us by your spirit to live in it with you, to not just be recipients of the gospel and redemption, but to be participants in it. So as you've called us through the book of Philippians, to be a people that walk in to our circumstances and relationships and work to have a mind that is our mind in Christ, to set aside our prerogatives for the sake of others. God, you know the complications of that as it relates to our humanity. We ask now that as we come and remember what you've done for us, that we would also be empowered by that remembering through your spirit to engage in a different way today, this week, this month, and to keep setting our minds in the place that was your mind, our mind we have in Christ, that we would, like you, humble ourselves for the sake of others. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for what you've done for us and we're so grateful that you've empowered us to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.